I'd like us to read in Luke's Gospel and the fifth chapter. The fifth chapter of Luke's Gospel, and I'm taking up the narrative at verse 17. Luke 5 and verse 17. Now it happened on a certain day, as he was teaching, that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by, who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Then behold, men brought on a bed a man who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring in and lay before him. And when they could not find how they might bring him in, because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop and let him down with his bed through the tiling into the midst before Jesus. When he saw their faith, he said to him, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he rose up before them, took up what he had been lying on, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed, and they glorified God, and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. Well, the significance of the story that we are to consider this evening is that it is recorded in three of the four Gospels. And in Matthew's account, we see that it follows on from the healing of the Gadarene demoniac. And Capernaum has now become the centre of our Lord's public ministry. And at this point in his life, we have this account of the healing of this paralysed man. Our Lord has entered into a house in Capernaum that is filled with people, crowds of other people unable to gain access. They're all thronging around the house. No doubt his friends and his disciples were there, together with those who had a genuine interest in what he was saying and what he was doing. There must have been many people who were there simply because they were curious to see what was happening. There would be those whose excitement had been aroused by what they'd previously seen him do in Capernaum. But last and not least were the Orthodox Orthodox Jewish rabbis, the Pharisees and the doctors of the law. These men were filled with envy, deeply disturbed about the large crowds that were being attracted to him, and resenting his claim to be the Messiah, the Son of God. And Luke tells us in verse 17 that these important people had come out of every town and village, not only in Galilee, but also in Judea and even from Jerusalem. So much so that there was no room left inside the house or anywhere near the doorway. And as he's teaching the people, suddenly there is this interruption. 
created by a noise that was coming from overhead. A paralyzed man is being lowered down into the house through a hole which had been made in the roof. And it seems that his friends had found an outside stairway to the roof of the house. And by means of that stairway, they carried their friend onto the roof. They may well have crossed a number of other roofs in order to get to this one. But one way or another, they'd reached the spot directly above where Jesus was addressing the people. And their next problem was how to get him to Jesus. And the commentators tell us that the roofs in Palestine were usually flat with beams and rafters overlaid with brushwood and branches and then covered with a layer of mud or clay mixed with chopped straw. So such a roof wasn't all that difficult to break up. And so we are told that they made an opening in it big enough to pass the man through. The bed would be a poor man's bed, probably a thin mattress filled with straw, ropes attached to the different corners. And by this means, they lowered the man through the floor, to the floor, from the roof, right to the very feet of Jesus. Now, interestingly, there is no record in any of the Gospels of any conversation that passed between either the friends or the man and the Lord. They simply say that the Lord saw their faith and then he spoke to the paralyzed man and told him that his sins were forgiven. And our Lord was deeply touched by what he saw as faith in these men and the obvious struggle that they'd had and the determination that they'd shown in bringing this man to him. So recognizing that the greatest thing of which this man was in need he looked at him and he pronounced a full and free pardon. And the scribes and the Pharisees, looking on, bent on finding fault, they accuse him of blasphemy. Who except God alone can forgive sins? Pronouncing pardon is easy enough. Nobody can challenge that. They felt that it's comparatively easy to say that, that his sins are forgiven, but let him do something for the man. That's how they reasoned, and that is why Jesus went on to heal the man instantly and totally, to show to them that he was indeed qualified as the Son of God to forgive sins. So the miracle was a confirmation of the act of pardon. Now the whole incident is recorded in Matthew and in Mark, as well as in Luke's Gospel. And those other writers give you a little more detail to fill in the wider picture. And as Matthew records his incident, he introduces it by using the word behold. And that is a favorite way of Matthew introducing something to him that is particularly significant. And there is a great deal of significance in what happened in this incident. That's why three out of four of the Gospels record it, in order to stress the importance of the basic elements that are being manifested in what happened. So let me try to point out those basic elements with you. Taken at its simplest, this story is both a challenge and an encouragement 
for Christians and non-Christians alike. Now you will notice that the two main things that the story teaches concerns faith and forgiveness. There was faith on the part of the friends and of the man himself, and then there was the forgiveness of our Lord. So both of these things are vital elements in the Christian message. Both of them are required if ever any man, woman, or young person is to be saved and go to heaven. Salvation is by faith, and that faith receives forgiveness, which is offered as a free gift. So I want to consider the faith of the friends of this man, and then I want to consider the matter of forgiveness. So first of all, lessons from the faith of the friends of this man. And it's this aspect of the story that's so challenging and encouraging, especially for Christians. If you are a Christian, just think of all the people that you seek to pray for. Think of all the prayer requests you get by email or in your church prayer meeting and so on. Asking for prayer for different people, for different places, for different difficulties, for different problems, different challenges. Especially in the generation where we are in the midst of difficult days, days of great darkness as far as the gospel is concerned, not only abroad but also in this country. Never was prayer more needed than today. Iniquity abounds in what can only be described as a great unleasing unleasing of Satan. And there's no doubt in my own mind that all that we see happening on a global scale is pointing to the imminent return of our Lord Jesus Christ at the end of the world. Now, as believers, we are in this world. And we can't opt out of our obligation as Christians within the world. We have to continue to live for Christ as light in a dark place, as salt in the world, until the Lord comes or he calls us into glory. But as you see everything that is going on around you, it's the easiest thing to become discouraged and to become downcast and to lose heart. And that is a great danger to each of us individually, and it's also a danger for those of us corporately within our church life. So how can we continue and not lose heart? Well, you remember that the Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthians, told them that one of the things that kept him going was that he had an unbounded spirit of faith. An unbounded spirit of faith. That is not wishful thinking. It's laying hold of the truths of God, standing upon them, and living your life in accordance with them. That is what it means to be a believer. It means that you do not lose heart in this world, despite all that is happening, or all that is not happening, or all that may yet happen, whatever the case may be. And within this world, we are all concerned for our loved ones, and for the unconverted, and for the outsider, And we feel that it's so sad that very, very few are being saved. We are living in the day of small things. So how can you continue and not lose heart? Because we cannot save men and women. That's the Lord's work. 
But that does not mean that we are left without any responsibility. We must know what it is to have greater faith. So that's what we see illustrated here with these men. They took their friend to where Jesus was to be found. It doesn't tell us for what specific reason they brought him to Jesus. We presume that it was for healing. But who is to say that they didn't recognize that he had a deeper need? And certainly our Lord recognized that he had a deeper need. Whatever it was, it's important that when Jesus saw their faith, he spoke the word of forgiveness to the man. So in a very real sense, the faith of these men is what can only be described as vicarious faith or vicarious faith. And by vicarious, we mean something which is done for, or instead of, or in the place of someone else. It is substitutionary. The vicarious sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ was something that he suffered in the place and in the stead of his people. He died that we might be forgiven. So when we speak about vicarious faith, we are speaking about faith which is accepted and exercised on behalf of or instead of someone else. So this man was healed because of the faith of his friend. And it wasn't simply their faith in cooperation with his. It was instead of his There may well have been faith on his part, and I'm sure that there was, but there is no direct reference to that. The stress is laid upon the faith of the friends who brought him to Jesus. In verse 20, when he saw their faith. Now, in case you're jumping to some conclusions in your mind that you shouldn't jump to, I am not speaking here about the matter of salvation by proxy or that you can be saved without personal faith. That is not the lesson of this story. The faith which is being exercised on behalf of others is that they may be brought to the place of salvation. And I want to point out to you that it's not an isolated incident. Of the 24 miracles of healing recorded in the Gospel, seven were healed entirely as a result of the faith of others. And it's not simply the faith of a strong person coming to the aid of the weak. It is a faith which prevails for the weak, apart from any faith of their own. Now let me point out to you these examples. There are four of them I want to draw your attention to. So if you have your Bible open, it may help you. I'll not read the, the, the scripture itself, but if you look at Matthew chapter 8 and verse, verse 5 to verse 15, and you can glance that as I'm speaking about it, because that's a record of a centurion who came to Jesus beseeching him concerning his sick servant at home. And Jesus said to him, well, I'll I'll come and heal him. And the thought of that condescension overwhelmed the centurion. He protested that he wasn't worthy to receive Christ under his roof. And he said that it was simply enough for him to speak the word and his servant would be healed. And you will see what Jesus said in verse 8. 
in verse 10 rather, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And then in verse 13, go your way, as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Now whose faith healed him? It was not the faith of the servant. It was the faith of the centurion. Not a word is said about the faith of the person who was healed. It is attributed to the faith of the man who exercised faith on his behalf. Now you can go over in your Bible to John's Gospel, chapter 4, and read at verse 46, because here is another occasion where there came from Capernaum to Cana a nobleman whose child was sick at home. And he besought Jesus that he would come down and heal his son. The son was at the point of death. And instead of yielding at once, as he did in the case of the centurion, Jesus began to reprove that kind of spirit that cannot possibly believe except it sees signs and wonders. And the father, who is impatient and distressed concerning his dying child, pleaded with him, to go with him before the child died. And there wasn't a moment to be lost. 25 miles had to be travelled and it might be too late. So the man didn't even conceive that the healing could be possible without physical contact. Now neither the passionate appeal nor the physical contact was necessary. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your son lives. And John tells us that the astonished father believed the word that Jesus had spoken and he went and found Christ's word confirmed by the message of his servants. They told him that the child had been healed at the very hour that Jesus had said the word and he had believed. Now whose faith was exercised? He was healed entirely as a result of the faith of his father who exercised it vicariously for the son who was 25 miles away. Now, if you've got your Bible, turn over to Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, and at verse 14. Because here is another instance of a father's faith prevailing for an only only child. They are near the Mount of Transfiguration. The fathers asked the disciples, and they couldn't do anything. And Jesus throws back the healing of the boy upon the faith of the Father. It wasn't a question of Christ's power. It was a matter of the Father's faith. Verse 24, Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And then Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and the lad was healed. Whose faith prevailed? It was not the boys and it was not the disciples. It was the faith of the Father. Now, finally, look at Matthew chapter 15 at verse 21. And here you have a more striking event. In the faith of a Greek woman in the district of Tyre and Sidon. And our Lord has withdrawn into that country in order to be quiet, and he requested that no one should be told of his presence. Yet he couldn't be hid. And this woman comes to him. Her daughter is grievously afflicted, and she hears of him, and she seeks him out. She throws herself at his feet. She cries to him, beseeching him to cast out the evil spirit out of her daughter. 
And our Lord never seemed to speak to any other person as he spoke to this woman. His silence at first is a rebuff. But she followed him, begging him as she went, until the disciples beseech him to grant her request. Now his silence had been a severe blow. But what about his speech? I was not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And she hears this, she falls at his feet, she pours out her innermost soul in a brief but very moving prayer. Lord, help me. And Jesus replied, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, such a remark would have silenced most people. But she prevails with him. Yes, Lord, she says, but even the dogs under the table eat of the children's crumbs. And at that point, our Lord answered her request. Oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done to you, even as you will. And when she arrived home, she found her daughter lying peacefully in bed. The evil spirit has departed out of her. So whose faith brought the healing it did not come through the daughter's faith it came through the faith of the mother so in all of these pictures or examples of vicarious faith the faith of a centurion for his servant a father prevailing for his child a mother prevailing for her daughter and four men coming on behalf of their friend Now, think for a moment of that mother with her child. When it seems that her request will be denied, she cried out with greater intensity, have mercy on me. And I want to point out something of great importance here. Something that you can see in each of these cases. The mother suffered in her child before she could believe for her deliverance. The distress of the distracted father at the foot of the mount is seen in the same way. If you can do anything for us, the father has suffered in his child before he could bring him to Christ. And the point that I'm making is this, that vicarious faith begins with vicarious sorrow and vicarious grief and vicarious shame because we see their sorrows and we feel their agonies and we grieve over the way they're living and the things that they're suffering and so on and their sins become our personal burdens and their sorrows are our grief. But there is a sense in which we need to do more than that. We need to do what these men did and what these people did and we need to exercise faith on their behalf. Now I'm not speaking about salvation by proxy. I'm stressing these things so that you do not lose faith and you do not lose heart. Don't lose faith or heart for your family, for your friends, For those people around you in this world, God is able to save them. He's able to keep them. And we need to believe in that ability. 
And it all begins by making the needs of that other person our own. We bring them by faith to Jesus. And it is by their faith in Jesus that they are saved. But we need to have the faith to bring them to him. So where is Jesus to be found? Where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst. In a very place like this, Jesus said he will be here. And we need to come to Christ for them, and we need to seek to bring them to Christ by faith. Not that they can have surrogate salvation. That is not the point. They must have personal faith in Christ themselves in order to be saved. But very often we need to have faith that that might be brought about. And that's what the story is about. Here are four men who are exercised in great faith despite all of the hindrances that were against them. Now, one of the great hindrances that we face is to be brought to the place of disappointment and despair or despondency. And we lose faith. And that's the problem with so many of us. We give up easily. We give up quickly. We stop witnessing to them and we stop praying for them. And their situations are regarded as hopeless. And so, in a sense, we abandon them. And we turn to other people and to other situations. And individuals are given up because we feel that it's useless to carry on seeking their salvation. So, in your prayer life and in your prayer meetings in your churches, you need to cry to God for greater faith. So that we'll be willing to believe people back to God where they can believe in Christ and Christ can save them and help them. And so long as the peril of the unsaved is not felt by us as a burden, so long as their salvation is not believed that it could be possible, then we're not going to see souls saved. Do you remember in John chapter 4 how the Samaritans who believed on Christ because of the testimony of the woman... She believed, and she also believed that they could believe as well. So whose faith prevailed on their behalf? They obviously came to personal faith in Christ, but she believed that they could do that. That what he'd done for her, he could do for them. And unless we are willing to take hold of the hopeless and helpless people, and the hopeless and helpless situations with a mighty faith... What's going to happen to them? That, brethren, is the basis of intercessory prayer. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul entreats the prayers of his spiritual children for? He's confronted, he said, with a closed door, forbidden to preach the gospel to those who are perishing, and he asks for prayers, the prayers of God's people, that the door may be opened. In another situation, there is an open door and there are many adversaries. And he says, pray that the word of the Lord may have free course and that it may be glorified. What is he asking? He's asking for a vicarious operation of faith. It needs the Holy Spirit to awaken our compassion and to drive our desires and to direct our prayers 
And that kind of praying is never in vain. The centurion's child was healed 25 miles away at the very hour that his father prayed. And sometimes we think it's a coincidence, but it's not. How many of you have had a sleepless night and God has directed you to pray for somebody? And then you may find out a week or a month later that at the very moment that person was in need and they found the help of God. Now, this story is full of encouragement. If you are longing to see answers to your prayers and the salvation of your loved ones, keep on praying and believing that they can be saved and they can be rescued. Don't be mistaken. This kind of work that you are praying for is beset with difficulties. And if you want to bring people to know Christ, you will always know difficulties. So let me ask you to consider the difficulties that their faith encountered in this incident. And this is an example of how faith can overcome difficulties. And the first difficulty was with the man himself. He was incurably paralyzed. Nobody had been able to help him or do anything for him. He was not only incurable, he was also incapable. He could do nothing to help himself. He may well have lost any hope or interest in being healed or helped. Now, have you never met people like that? They've lost hope. They don't appear to have any interest. If ever this man is going to come into contact with Jesus, he's got to be brought to Jesus. But that task was impossible for any one man to accomplish. But that was not impossible for four men. And so we see that their faith is united in a common purpose and they found a way of doing it. Vicarious faith must be like that. Instead of brooding over the difficulties or the indifference or the unbelief of many people, we need to cooperate with the few who have like precious faith. It doesn't sit back and bemoan the fact that these people are unconverted, that they show no interest, and we just simply sit back and moan about it. Isn't it what somebody has said? It's better to light a candle than to sit and do nothing but complain about the dark. Faith is seen by its works, and vicarious faith works as well as believes for the blessing and the salvation of others. And the second difficulty that they encountered, as soon as they got the man to the place where Jesus was, and they could hear, he could hear his word, the way was blocked. They couldn't get in. Crowds there, they couldn't get in. And sadly, the way is blocked in many churches. It's still blocked. Sometimes it's not the difficulty of getting the outsider or the sinner or the social outcast to come in. The problem is to get the people who gather about Christ to receive them. The house is full. But there are many churches in our day, especially in the United Kingdom, which are empty inside. And the few people that are there block the way for others to come. My daughter, for certain reasons, was going to worship at a church in Manchester, which will be nameless. A large building, 400, 450, beautiful building. 
She was told that if she was coming into that church to worship, she must wear a hat and she must carry an authorised version of the Bible. And so she went. And she went a few times. There were eight people in that church, all over 80 years of age. The opening prayer lasted for 40 minutes, but I'll not say anything about that. But immediately the service was over, an elderly lady came to her and said, is that the authorised version you're carrying? And then she said, we don't know why we can't get people to come in. (laughs) People inside can be a hindrance to people coming to Christ. I can't say that I've seen it in this church, nor in the church that I'm a member of now. But it only needs a look. And it only needs a comment. And it only needs you to look at them as if to say, this is my seat and not yours. It only needs somebody to walk past them and not say, hello, how are you, who are you? And they go in and out and nobody speaks. And that's the hindrance from people coming to faith in Christ. So what is the use of praying and toiling for the lost if when they come to hear the gospel they are ignored instead of welcomed when people would rather see them remain lost than to move out of their particular comfort zone and that kind of thing can happen and that is why wherever possible we must go out of our way to speak to those people who come in for the first time And when that kind of thing does happen, what are we to do? We need to follow the example of these men. Don't give up. Any weakling can give up and resign. But the man or woman of faith, they hold on. And sometimes you need to stiffen your backbone and hold out your tongue, or not hold out your tongue maybe, refuse to respond to people who criticize your efforts but do nothing themselves. And keep your mind on what you are seeking to do. Keep your eye upon Christ. And the people outside and in the house have simply dismissed these men and shoved them away, but they wouldn't give up. He that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And these men diligently sought Christ. They retained their faith. They stuck to their task and they unroofed the roof. And many another person would have given up and turned away and taken him home. But faith held on. And when the ordinary ways failed, they tried the extraordinary. And the more difficult it is, sometimes the more unusual and unorthodox we have to be. And love is persistent. And sometimes we have to be like that in trying to bring people to Christ. God sometimes uses unusual and unorthodox ways. I, I don't agree to women being elders in the church. But sometimes God uses women. Gladys Aylward, I met Gladys Aylward a number of years ago. She went to China, she had no support, no missionary society. She was determined to go to China. 
She traveled by rail and road all alone. Now, I don't advocate women preachers, but I heard this woman preach, and she could preach. (laughs) And God occasionally blesses irregularity. I'm not advocating it, but sometimes he does that. And he blesses it. And he encourages those people who are disappointed. Now, this situation, you will notice, the Pharisees were angry at what they did. But the Lord was pleased. He commended their faith. He honored their faith. Others might have admired their courage or admired their zeal. They might have said, what determination, what perseverance. Jesus commended their faith. That was the thing that was precious to Christ, and that is what he honored. So the difficulties that faith encounters, now look at the rewards that faith receives in verse 25. A wonderful reward that these men received. They saw the man whom they'd brought being made strong and well and happy. The man that brought, they brought with his back on his bed takes his bed on his back and he goes home. And his happiness, I venture to suggest, was nothing in comparison to the happiness of his friends. Christ had vindicated what they'd done and what they'd believed, set his seal upon their methods where others might have condemned, and it was great cause for rejoicing. But greater still was to see the joy of that man being pardoned and saved from his sin. Can you possibly imagine the joy and the happiness of the woman of Samaria when she saw all of these others coming to faith in Christ? Or the happiness of the Syrophoenician woman when her daughter was healed? Or the joy of the centurion when his servant was healed? Or the joy of that man whose son was healed at the foot of the mount? You will know fullness of joy if you've been involved in something like that. That God has used you to bring lost souls to the feet of Christ. And to see their lives changed and their characters changed and their families changed and their homes changed. All transformed by the grace of God. Some of you know the hymn based on Samuel Rutherford's letters, The Sands of Time Are Sinking. Samuel Rutherford ministered in a small hamlet on the southern border of Scotland alongside the river Solway uh, looking across to England. And when you sing, the sands of time is sinking, there are 19 verses to that. We don't usually sing the 19 verses. But one of the verses says this, Dear Anwath, by the Solway, to me thou still art dear. Even from the verge of heaven I drop for thee a tear. Oh, if one soul from Anwath meets me at God's right hand, my heaven will be two heavens in Emmanuel's land. So having looked at the whole matter of faith, let me ask you to look now at the matter of forgiveness. And first of all, look at this man himself. And bear in mind that he had something more wrong with him than his palsy. And probably his friends knew about him more than most. And that's why they brought him. Because there was the palsy of sin in his soul. 
And that is why our Lord goes right to the very source of his trouble. Because if ever he is going to be blessed and happy, he needed to know that his sins were forgiven. And that is true of all people. How can any person ever be cleansed from their sin and receive a full and free pardon? It can only come from God alone because it is against him that all sin is committed. Even if you're not a Christian this evening, you were made in the image of God. And how do you think that God feels when he looks at you and you are rejecting and fighting against his image that is in you? It's as serious as that. And here is this man, he sinned. And all sin is a commitment against God. So Jesus goes to the greatest need of which this man was in need. We all need a full and free pardon. And here are the scribes and the Pharisees looking on, bent on finding fault with him, accusing him in their hearts of blasphemy. Who except God alone can forgive sins? Pronouncing pardon is easy enough. Nobody can challenge that. It's a comparatively easy thing to say that his sins are forgiven. But let him do something for the man. So that's how they were reasoning. And that is why Jesus went on to heal the man instantly and totally to show to them that he was indeed qualified as the Son of God to forgive sins. So the miracle was a confirmation of the act of pardon. Salvation is by faith. And that faith receives the forgiveness which is offered as a free gift from Christ. And that gift is the greatest thing that any man, woman, or young person can possess. I don't know who you are this evening, most of you. You may well be somebody who is not a Christian. But you think you're a very good living person. And maybe God will accept you because of that. I, I was travelling from Singapore to Australia last year and uh, sat next to a man on the plane and he started talking to me and he said, are you going on business? Oh yes, I said, I am. What do you do? I said, I'm in the most wonderful business in the world. I tell people how they can be right with God. Well, he went silent for about five minutes. (laughs) And then he turned to me, he said, I try to live by the Ten Commandments. That is not the solution. That's the problem. You can't be acceptable by God simply by living by the Ten Commandments. Only Jesus can deal with your sin. That is why he went to that cross and died a a vicarious death. He lived that life that you could never live because of your indwelling sin. He laid down that life as a sacrifice for sinners. And it's only in Christ that you can be delivered and be pardoned and forgiven. And of all the things that you might like to have in life, there is nothing that is more precious than knowing your sins are forgiven. All your sins are forgiven. All your transgressions are blotted out as a thick cloud. They no longer stand before you and a holy God. What greater gift could any person have 
or wish to have, to know that the whole sorry, sordid trail of the sins of my past life has been cleansed and there is now nothing in the record that stands against me. What could be more important and more joyous than having that? Look at this man before his forgiveness. We're not told a great deal about him. He may have been quite a young man. Marx tells us that Jesus calls him son. Son, your sins are forgiven you. I would hardly think that our Lord would say that to a man who was older than himself. He may have been paralyzed for years, or like many another, he may have become paralyzed all of a sudden while he was in the midst of good health. Whatever the circumstances, here as we meet him, he's totally paralyzed and unable to move. And lying there, paralyzed on his bed, he must surely have thought long and hard and often about his own sinful condition. The thoughts of his past life, the sins of commission, the sins of omission, his failings, his falling short, all the transgressions, all the rebellion against God. How often had God spoken to him? And maybe you are here this evening and God is speaking to you. How often has God spoken to you about the sin in your life? Had this man reacted against the voice of God and simply gone his own self-centered way? Was he a man who was living with the consequences of some secret sin? We don't know. There are many stories behind many different faces and none of us know the half of what really goes on. And as he lay there, he must surely have had a heavy heart. Maybe he had pleaded with his friends to take him to Christ. If ever any person is to know the wonder of sins forgiven, they have to have personal faith in Jesus Christ that he alone can bestow that forgiveness. And maybe that is the word that you need to hear this evening. Because I've been around churches long enough in my life to know that there are many professing Christians who are practicing atheists. And you can be here and you can profess to be a true believer. And I would say to you, where is the evidence of that? Where is the evidence of that? You can be a professing Christian in this place on the Lord's Day and a practicing atheist the rest of the week. You may have had friends who have prayed for you for years. Maybe you've had friends, even today, who've invited you to this service this evening. And they have had faith to believe that Christ is able to save you, even in this gathering. He's able to save you and to forgive you. And you need the help of Christ. And he alone is the one who is able to save you. But how can that be realized in your life? It comes through your personal faith in believing in his power and his ability and believing in his word when he says, whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Whether you come running or walking or creeping on your hands and knees or whether you are carried by your friends, as long as you come to Christ, he is willing to accept you and to forgive you. 
It may be faith as small as a grain of mustard seed. He will not ignore it. If there is but a smoldering ember of your faith left, he will not quench it. And it was better for this man to be paralyzed and have faith in Christ than to be walking and be like the Pharisees who had no faith in Christ. If you truly believe in Jesus, it doesn't matter how far you have fallen, it doesn't matter how great your inability, if you believe in him, you are brought into contact with omnipotence and with omniscience, and he is able to save you. So picture this scene once again. The house is crowded. People are now all the more curious as to what's happening. And the friends of the man are either still on the roof looking down, or they've managed to get down and they're standing beside him. The scribes and the Pharisees are observing everything that is going on with a very special interest. Now picture the man lying at the feet of Jesus, looking into the face of the Son of God. And it wasn't long before Jesus spoke to him and said to him, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. And those friends may have been puzzled by that. They had brought him for the healing of his body. But Jesus recognized that there was a far more urgent matter to be dealt with. It was his sin. That was his heaviest burden. And that's what Christ could see. And that is why he didn't heal him first. Now whether there was any relationship between this man's sin and his sickness, we're not told. Sometimes that can happen. But that is not always the case, because the main issue for every person born into this world is the sickness and the disease of their sin. And you may think, as far as you are concerned, that that is otherwise. But what we think is the matter with us, and what Jesus thinks is the matter with us, are two entirely different things. The main thing is that God sees your greatest need, and that is the need of forgiveness. Now notice a few things about the forgiveness that Jesus gave to this man. First of all, it was instantaneous. He simply spoke, and it was done. There was no long formula that the man had to follow. There was no intricate problem that he had to work out in his mind. There were no penances that he had to do. There were no pilgrimages that he had to make. There were no sacrifices that he had to present. Jesus simply spoke the word and he was forgiven. And that word had such might and power that he didn't need to engage, our Lord didn't need to engage in some long discourse. He just simply said, your sins are forgiven. That was all that was required. One sentence. And that is the whole truth of the gospel. There is instantaneous forgiveness to be received from God. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. You don't need to go on a pilgrimage. You don't need to do penance. It is immediate forgiveness. It was also a valid forgiveness. Now what do I mean by that? Well, we're not dealing here with a sinful man sitting in a confessional pronouncing absolution from their sins to a fellow sinner. 
We're dealing here with the sinless Son of God, the one who alone has power on earth to forgive sins. Him, we're told, God has exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a saviour, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And what our Lord said was spoken with divine authority. And the question in verse 5 was not which is easier to do, which is easier to say. And he's basically saying, you religious leaders are thinking that I can say it, but who is to know whether or not I'm an imposter? Prove that you're not an imposter by telling him to rise and walk. That's what they were thinking. And in order that those Jewish authorities might know that the authority to forgive sins belongs to him, he healed the man. And that tells you that Jesus really is able to forgive your sins. It's not theoretical, it's not imaginary. It's actual and it's effective. It was instantaneous, it was valid, and it was comprehensive. Look at the words carefully. Your sins, in the plural, your sins are forgiven. Not just one sin or many sins, but all your sins. When you start dealing with particular sins, as earthly priests do, then you're bound to leave something out. When Christ forgives, he forgives all your sins. Sins against a holy God, sins against a righteous law, sins against the gospel, sins against the light of nature, sins of this kind and of that kind. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin. Even the sins of murder, even the sins of adultery, even the sins of lust, even the sins of blasphemy, yes, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men and in one sudden sweep of the divine mercy all the sins of the man's life were washed away there is no such thing as the half pardon of sin when God forgives they are totally fully forgiven there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus the whole record is destroyed Buried in the depths of God's forgetfulness. So Christian forgiveness in the gospel means that a person is absolutely, irreversibly, eternally forgiven. It was instantaneous, it was valid, it was comprehensive. And it clearly demonstrates the wonder of God's grace in the gospel. He forgives sinners in such a way instantaneously, comprehensively, fully, and with divine authority. And this is recorded in the scriptures so that you and I might know what true forgiveness is all about. Now let me close by looking at what happened after he was forgiven, because it's very important. Two things were evident after the word of forgiveness was given to this man. And the first thing was a changed life. And the second thing was an obedient spirit. A changed life. Look at the man in your mind's eye again. Use your God-given sanctified imagination. Before he was physically healed, in the moment that Jesus spoke the word of forgiveness, there must have been an inward peace that flooded his soul. And the Lord said to him, be of good cheer. 
And that good cheer must have flooded the whole of his being. And many of us can testify that it's an amazing thing to see at times when people come to faith in Christ. Their very physical appearance can be changed. They have this inner experience. Sometimes there is immediate radical change. Sometimes it's more gradual. But there is a change. And I could probably look around this congregation and see some of you who have been changed in this way. There is a change. There was the immediate physical healing, which was simply the outward evidence of the inner healing. I'm often astonished at our Lord's confidence. I'm sure if I was there and he said, so that you may know that I can forgive sins, I would be standing saying, I hope it works. He wasn't standing there saying, I hope it works. With the greatest confidence, he said, rise, take up your bed and walk. It is a miracle. And that is what the gospel is all about. It is supernatural. And like this man, we are helpless, hopeless. We can't do anything to help ourselves. We look at these people who are lost. We feel that it would be impossible for them to come to Christ. Like this man, they're unable. They're incapable. But the gospel comes to them and tells them to repent and believe. But they can't. But in the very act of listening to the word of God... They receive the gift of faith, and God is able to save them. Now, is that a contradiction? No, it's not a contradiction. No more a contradiction than when the apostle, the prophet Ezekiel, was told to go and preach to the dry bones. It's through the word of God that faith and repentance are given, and the miracle of salvation takes place. That's why we need to bring the word of God to men and women, because that's what wrought the change here. And it is that alone that can change hearts and minds and the lives of any sinner. Now look at what is said of this man. He arose and took up his bed and went to his own house, glorifying God. He was so happy that he glorified God. And who wouldn't have done so in such a situation? He must surely have spoke to every person that he met and told them what had just happened to him, both physically and spiritually. And many people would obviously see the change. They would say, what's gone on in your life? What's happened? That's always an evidence that someone has experienced true repentance and received full forgiveness. Their life is changed. They begin to worship. They begin to glorify God, the God that they once despised. And they experience real joy. When they come to Christ. I've conducted, I should imagine, scores, scores of weddings in my lifetime. I don't know whether it's like this in the United States, but in most weddings, in churches, in the United Kingdom, at some point, the minister will say in the wedding service, who gives this woman to be married to this man? And usually the bride's father says, I do. And he hands his daughter to the bride to be, a, to be her husband. Now what is happening when we are converted? When you become a child of God, God the Father gives you to his son.
that you become his bride. What greater joy can you have than that? Can you imagine that bride walking down the aisle as glum as anything? No. The gospel brings joy and happiness. You're not going to the slaughter when you're coming to Christ. You're coming into joy. It always puzzles me when there are professing Christians who don't seem to have any good cheer in their lives. It's as if Jesus has never saved them. You know the kind of thing when you give somebody a gift and the way they receive it, it dismays you. They simply take it, they look at it, they put it to one side, giving the impression that they expected something different or something more practical. My response to that kind of thing, if I'd known how they were going to take it, I might have thought twice about giving it. Christ's salvation is something to be valued and delighted in. He puts a new sun in your sky. He puts a new joy in your heart. He puts a new song in your mouth. And one of the songs I love to sing, sadly I don't think it's in your hymnal, it says this, Heaven above is softer blue. Earth around is sweeter green. Something lives in every hue that Christless eyes had never seen. Birds with gladder songs o'erflow. Flowers with deeper beauties shine. Since I know, as now I know, that I am his and he is mine. Everything becomes new. Ask yourself the question, am I a changed man or a changed woman? Do I have a love for God? Do I have a deep sense of gratitude to Christ? Do I know what it is to love to worship him and to glorify him and to speak about him? But not only was there a changed life, there was also an obedient spirit. The paralyzed man did exactly what Jesus told him to do. He stood up in front of the Lord. When Jesus told him to walk, he walked. And then he said, take up your mattress and go home. And he did so immediately. If I'd have been that man, I'd have protested. I want to see what's going on here. I want to hear the rest of the sermon. He went home. He was obedient to Christ. And that is something that we all need to cultivate. That if you are a Christian, listen to the words of our Lord's mother at the wedding of Cana of Galilee. Whatsoever he says to you, do it. Do it. What does he say to you when you have become a Christian? Don't forget the assembling of yourselves together as the men of some is. Do you neglect worship? Believe and be baptized. Have you been baptized as a professing believer? Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Obey Christ. And always keep in your mind that you are his servant and he is not yours. And before you simply start asking him to do this and to do that as if he was your red cap, he's not. He is your Lord and you are to worship him. 
Psalm 45. He is your Lord. Worship him. Do what Christ tells you to do. That is an evidence that you have been saved. Obey him. Whether the matter is great or small, whether you think it is essential or non-essential, it's not what you think that matters. What does Christ say? Obey him. Be his servant. That is an evidence that you have been saved. Don't raise any questions. Now, there are two groups of people in that situation. There's a group of people here, and they are inwardly gnashing their teeth and reacting against him. And there are this man and his friends here, and they believe in him. And there are two groups of people in this building. And you may be here and you may be gnashing against God and hoping that this sermon's going to finish now. But this may be the very last sermon I will preach and it may be the very last sermon that you will hear. What will you do with Christ? Will you come to him, receive him, embrace him, enjoy his love and all that he gives to you? And serve him with all of your heart and all of your life. And think of the consequences if you don't. Because one day he will say to you, on your own, did you never hear the offer of the gospel? What are you going to say? May God give you grace to repent and faith to believe.